0: There we go. Welcome to the Tuesday Night Bible Study, all of you that are here and on Zoom and watching the recording, tomorrow or tonight. Anyway, um, we just got done praying, and now we are going to look at Revelation 14. But before we do that, let's just review Revelation 13. God understands humanity enough to know that after the chapter called chapter 13, we really needed chapter 14 in chapter 13 we find out that there's a coming world leader called the antichrist who will take over the whole world be empowered by satan hate god hate jesus blaspheme call himself god persecute and even kill some christians uh, who will be martyrs for their faith and if that wasn't bad enough He will force everyone to take a mark on their hand or forehead that you can't buy or sell anything without it. And there's a false prophet guy coming. That'll be his right-hand man, his sort of uh, promoter, who will make an image. And people will bow down to and worship the image and the beast, which is the Antichrist. This is all in chapter 13. And take that mark, which is an allegiance we'll learn in this chapter, to him that is irrevocable. At least it appears to me. So anyway, after all that bad news and the fact that some will be imprisoned or even uh, killed that are believers, comes chapter 14. We're still, since chapter 12, in a parenthesis in terms of chronology of events that occur and when they occur. This is all a pause to give the background God's giving um, And chapter 13 was not in order, but is somewhat chronological in that there will be halfway through the seven-year tribulation, this guy, the Antichrist, who will be uh, in control of the whole world, empowered by Satan, the last leader uh, of of world government. Um, Let's see. So, uh, but the Christians that are persecuted and that die... The, by this book makes clear over and over and over again that they did not lose they won that they 're victorious that the worst thing you can do to a Christian worldly speaking is to kill them, and yet that 's the best thing that can happen, so they 're victorious you 'll see that in this chapter as well, so this is an assurance chapter fourteen is to the readers don 't lose hope. I know chapter thirteen looked bad um, this is Uh, a look a little bit back and also forward to Christ's return. So we're going to fast forward three and a half years. We're going to look back a little. It's a little confusing time-wise, but I think you'll uh, figure it out. Um, Let's dive in, shall we? So I know that you're awake. Say amen. Amen. Pretty good. All right. And those of you on Zoom, wave or say amen or hold up an amen sign. I love it. Oh, there's two of them. Great. Chapter 14. Then I looked... And there before me was the Lamb, that's Jesus Christ, capitalized L in most Bibles, standing on Mount Zion, we said last week, that's the Bible's way of talking about Jerusalem, the hills of Zion uh, that uh, Jerusalem sits on. So there he is on Mount Zion. He's returned and with him are 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads this is symbol symbolizing ownership and protection the, so the lamb is jesus the father is god the father and the father's name you might say, is Yahweh, the personal name of God in the Old Testament, is written on their foreheads. Keep your finger in Revelation 14 and go half that number to Revelation 7. I just want to show you the last time we saw the 144,000, and we'll explain who they are. They were in chapter 7, um, and there are some people that are sealed by God. They're His. They cannot lose their salvation. They're His forever. And so look at verse four. Um, Let's see. Um, Well, look at verse three. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. So then he explains, then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. If you've ever heard of Herbert uh, uh, W. Armstrong and the Worldwide Church of God, he taught for years that that church was the 144,000. Jehovah's Witnesses used to teach that they were the 144,000. They now say that the 144 seats, if you will, have all been given out, so If you become a Jehovah's Witness tomorrow, you can't go to heaven, but you live on a paradise earth. You get sort of a second class. You don't go first class ticket. There are other groups that claim to be the 144,000. It's pretty clear that they're all wrong, and here's why. The number that was sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of where? Israel. These are Jewish people, probably men. I'll show you why in a second. And just so you, we don't misunderstand, because there's people that say, "Oh, Israel, you know, the church is now the real Israel." So he means Christians. If that's true, then read verse five from the tribe of Judah: twelve thousand were sealed. Anybody here from the tribe of Judah? Answer: Unless you're Jewish, you're not. Right? These are each of the twelve tribes of Israel: twelve thousand times 12, uh, 12. tribes, twelve thousand from each tribe. These are Jewish men that come to faith during the tribulation in the Lord Jesus Christ. We call them today completed Jews or messianic Jews. Have you heard that term? I know several uh, such people that were raised Jewish. They've learned that Jesus is the actual Jewish Messiah that was promised all through the Old Testament. Um, It's clear. So that's who this is. Now go back to chapter 14, There's the 144,000. We're fast-forwarding to the end. Jesus has returned, and where are they? They're standing with the Lamb. Um, Let's see, verse 1 that was. They have his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. I heard a loud sound, verse 2, from heaven, like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps which when you read that verse, you kind of say, well, which one is it, right? Because those are all pretty different. A sound from heaven, like the roar of rushing waters. You ever been to Niagara Falls? It's loud. Or even, you know, one of the falls in Yosemite. Um, It's loud. So, okay, it sounds like rushing water. Like a sound of a a loud peal of thunder. Well, that's a totally different sound, right? It's like both of those, but it's also like harpists playing their harps, do I understand this? No, <laughs> but it's loud and it's musical and it's it's sort of majestic and beautiful. And so the sound is probably the 144,000 praising God and it may be others. Verse three, and they, probably referring to the 144,000, sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures. Remember those were special angels that surrounded the throne of God. They sang a new song before the throne. That's the throne of God, before the four living creatures and the elders. Remember the 24 elders? Prior to this point, only the elders had harps. They're about to get handed out. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Somehow a special category of Christians. In that passage, chapter seven, remember we just read one of the 12 tribes, right? Right after that, there is a great multitude starting in verse 9 that no man can count. Those are all the other Christians, if you will. It's thought that these 144,000 Jewish believers evangelize the world in a way the church never has been able to. Um, And many are saved during the tribulation coming to the Lord Jesus prior to Antichrist coming on the scene. Um, So the the only ones that can learn the song are these 144,000. Uh, who have been redeemed from the earth. We're about to hear a description of these guys, uh, but I'm just reading my notes here. So, the 144,000 can appreciate this song in a special way. Um, I want you to notice that their praise that they're singing takes them right to the throne room of God, right? Right to the Lamb's feet on Mount Zion. Um, So, look at verse 4. Now, this is uh, depending on the translation that you have going to be a little confusing. And you're going to ask yourself, is this literal or symbolic? Most scholars say it's symbolic, but it might be both. What are you talking about, Joe? Verse four, these are those, that's the 144,000. And here's why they're men who did not defile themselves with women. Got the picture? For they remained, or they are, virgins. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Okay, so we know they're Jewish. We know they're men. The question is, do you mean literally unmarried men who never had relations with a woman, or is there precedent for saying this is symbolic? And the answer is yes. 2 Corinthians 11, 2. If you want to turn there, you can. I'll go there real quickly and save you the trouble, but you're welcome to do it as well. 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 2. I am jealous for you. This is Paul talking to the Christians in Corinth. I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. Jealousy. I promised you, almost like an engagement, I promised you to one husband to Christ so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. That's being said in Corinth where there were a thousand temple, wait for it, prostitutes in a, in a pagan temple where men would go and have sex with the prostitutes as an act of worship to some pagan god. I can guarantee you men made up that religion. Can I get an amen? Um, And it's absolutely insane. He's saying, I promised you as a virgin, meaning there's such a thing as physical adultery where a married person has sex with someone outside of marriage or an unmarried person has sex period, okay? That's physical adultery or physical fornication. But in the Bible, there's a lot of times it's spoken of as spiritual fornication, where you're cheating on God. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus and everything. But I do occasionally go to the pagan temple, or I worship money or fame or power or sex or whatever. He's saying these young men, I believe, have kept themselves pure, remained virgins. Now, could it be literal? The scholars, there's not many, but that think that it's literal, go so far as to say it's literal because it mentions they didn't defile themselves with women. If at all it said was the virgin thing, you could say it's symbolic. I think it's mostly symbolic. There's nothing evil about having sexual relations if you're married. Amen? So, They didn't defile themselves with women. They remained virgins with the temptation of idolatry during the tribulation. Listen, at the highest point it's ever been in human history. What do you mean? I mean, you can't buy or sell unless you take the mark on your hand or your forehead, which is pledging your allegiance to spiritually this antichrist. That's spiritual adultery. That's your, we are the bride of Christ, believers, amen? And if we take that mark, we worship anything else, let alone Satan in a man's body, Antichrist, then we're committing adultery spiritually. We're no longer virgins. So they remained virgins and it was tough for them. Second reason, they follow the lamb. So they didn't wimp out and uh, worship the Antichrist. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. That sentence and the next one makes some scholars think some of these guys might have been martyred. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. They walk in the spirit. Okay, that's great. But wait, remember Jesus says, follow me. He that desires to follow me must, listen, take up his, what? cross, an instrument of death, capital punishment, take up his cross, not her cross, I take up my cross, meaning what? Died to self, yes. Might it mean even martyrdom? It might. So that's the first thing. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. I'll follow Jesus here to church, but I'm not going to where it's persecution time and not these guys. They went wherever Jesus went he went to the cross. Maybe they did too, in a sense, of being martyred. But they follow the Lamb. That's the main thing. Jesus kept saying, follow me, to believers, remember, uh, in the Gospels. They were, that's the 144,000, I'm still in verse 4, purchased from among mankind, and what's the next word? Offered. That's a word, an Old Testament word for sacrifices. It could mean that some of these guys were killed for their faith and they didn't wimp out. When they were told, we're going to chop your head off unless you worship the beast, they said, go ahead. We worship Jesus Christ. He's Lord. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among mankind. You say, purchased for how much? Oh, it was very expensive, just like you were. What was the price? The death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross right? He purchased them. In First Corinthians, I think it is, if it's not it's 2nd, Paul says, you don't know you're not that you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, I glorify God in your body. They follow the land wherever they go. They were purchased from among mankind and offered maybe a sacrifice as first fruits. What's first fruits? You ever hear that term? Okay. First fruits is an Old Testament concept where if Jim Foster there had a big farm growing strawberries and the harvest was coming, the first strawberries that came in and the best strawberries that came in, he was to offer to God, give them at the temple. If he raised lambs, he would offer uh, the first fruits, okay, not... That takes faith, and here's why. Because he might think this is only the first part of the crop, I hate to give this, because what if there's a hailstorm it or, or insects show up all of a sudden and eat all my strawberries, I gave away everything. In faith, you give the first fruits. Logically, a businessman would say, I'm gonna wait till I get the whole crop in, figure out how much did I make. Okay, now I'll give 10% to God. First fruits is a, a thing done in faith Indicating that you understand more is coming from where this came from. Are you with me? So if these guys are the first fruits, he means it spiritually that there's more like them coming to faith. Other Jews, other Gentiles, whoever, but they're going to spread the gospel. They were offered as first fruits. There's more where that came from. So they're uh, offered as first fruits, notice, to God and the Lamb. If Jesus Christ, the lamb, is not God, that statement is blasphemy. You would never offer something to God and to the lamb. That's spiritually spiritual adultery, isn't it? Unless God, the Father, and the lamb are the one God along with the Holy Spirit. So to offer sacrifice to Jesus, to worship Jesus, is God upset with that? Is that spiritual adultery? No, not at all it's the same God you're worshiping. No lie, verse 5, was found in their mouths. So they're clearly not politicians. We can assume that. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Okay, here's the wrong way to take that verse. Well, this is a special Category of Christian men that I and Jeff and Boyce we could never aspire to be like this. these guys are sinless, wrong, well, it says they 're blameless they 're blameless because of their Lord, right? Did these guys still sin? Of course, none is without sin except Jesus, all of sin and false sort of the glory of God, so but they don 't lie in a time where all there is is lies about the Antichrist about. Blasphemy against God, these guys told the truth and they're blameless because of the Lamb who was their sacrifice. With me so far? Okay. Um, We already talked about that. They're faultless, yeah, because He paid and they're bought because He paid. So that's the 144,000, which we learned about seven chapters ago. Um, So, um, yeah, we talked about that. Verse 8. Nope. Verse six. Sorry. Then I saw another angel and there's been a lot of angels in this book, right? Flying in midair. This is a term that the Hebrews used for directly overhead, like where the noonday sun is. Okay. So that for visibility and for being able to be heard, it's a way of saying he's got the microphone on the huge PA system Everybody's going to hear or see whatever he says or does. Then I saw another angel flying, verse 6, in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth. Those who live on the earth is a term in Revelation that means the unsaved every time. He's going to proclaim the gospel to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. That language indicates he doesn't mean in the Middle East or in Europe or in this town, it's a global, if you will, announcement of the gospel. Has this ever occurred before? No, never. Even when Jesus is getting baptized or at the Mount of Transfiguration, when God spoke, those there heard him, but people a hundred miles away or even two miles away probably didn't hear anything. You with me? This is unusual for a number of reasons. Number one, you never see angels preaching the gospel. This is extremely unusual. God gave us the task of spread the word, cast the seed, witness, always be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within you, First Peter 3.15. Not here. This is one last chance. you got to remember, we've come through the, the seven seals, the seven trumpets. We're about to have the seven bowls, which, by the way, happened really quickly. This is like the last chance. Well, I wish God had gotten the word out to everyone. Here, somehow, he does. How many have heard of the Christian network on TV called Angel One? You ever heard of that? They named it Angel One because of this verse. As a way, with satellite technology, you can reach the whole globe. Now, is every TV tuned into Angel One? Probably not, right? This angel is preaching the gospel. You'll notice the second angel is going to give the negative side of the gospel, but he's still preaching the gospel as well. Um, Let's see. So uh, go back to verse 6. Flying in midair, he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth. How widespread is this? Every nation, every tribe, every language, every people. It's the Bible's way of saying it's a universal proclamation of the gospel. It's never been done before. True, you can put something on satellite, and if people tune in, they can hear it. If there's no electricity, no cable TV, no anything, none of that, everyone will hear this angel somehow. Maybe they'll explain it away. Maybe they'll think they had a hallucination, but God will get the word out. He's proclaiming the gospel, the good news. Here he comes, verse 7. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Now, that might not be the total announcement that he made because it says he proclaim- he has the eternal gospel, Right? By the way, there's been a lot of religions and philosophies and mythologies that have come and gone. When my wife and I were in Egypt visiting our son, we, I can't tell you how many old ancient ruins of temples we visited where they used to worship this such and such a God or that God or nobody's worshiping there. He's not the real God. This is the eternal gospel. It lasts forever and it lasts into eternity and beyond for those who believe. So there's a loud urgency to this announcement. He's preaching the eternal gospel. What's the gospel? It means, the word means in Greek, good news, right? The good news is, comes with bad news. The bad news is we're all sinners, every single human being. There's no way we can be pleasing to God or live our way to heaven or obey our way to heaven or do good deeds to outweigh our bad deeds. There's no way to save ourselves. There's no way to stop sinning. We are all deserving of and destined for hell apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, who loved you and I so much, came to earth, lived the perfect life you and I were supposed to live, sinless, died the horrible death of punishment, separation from God that you and I deserve and his sacrifice pays for you and I, our sins, our guilt, our shame, he took on the cross. I know I'm preaching to the choir, but (laughs) I'm preaching to the choir, but I want to say it because there may be somebody listening that goes, oh, never heard that. In any case, maybe he preached more than this, but I want you to notice that when he starts preaching, he doesn't say, Jesus, cross, salvation, He starts in Romans 1. Romans 1 talks about the depravity of man and that the first light God gives to mankind is not Jesus Christ. That's the third light. How many have ever heard that Romans 1 is the light of sea creation? The fact that there's a God who created everything. Romans 2 is the second light that's given to every man because every man can see the creation, see a, a baby being born or leaves on the trees or the wind and the waves and the you know gravity and a thousand other things, all the stars that declare the glory of God. Creation preaches about God, the Father. Second uh, Romans 2, the light of conscience, all starting with C. What do you mean conscience? Every human being has one. Deep down, the person that robs the bank or beats up the old lady and takes her purse knows this isn't right. Now it's possible to sear or burn your conscience to the point where you don't even, la, la la you don't even hear your conscience anymore. But you know deep down, everybody's got one. Everybody has the light of sea creation, Romans 1. Everybody's got the, le- the light of sea conscience, Romans 2. Respond to those lights and God will reveal to you the third light, Romans 3, the light of sea, Christ. But you don't start with that. You start with the fact that there's a God. Go back to Revelation 14. In a loud voice, urgency. It's like you're yelling, the theater's on fire, and you're yelling, get out now. He said in a loud voice, fear God. Now, I know people have trouble with this fear God thing. No, God's love, and there's nothing to fear. Yes, he is love. But this is not fear like I'm afraid of spiders, snakes, or whatever. This is a healthy reverence and awe for the absolute power of God, right? Fear God. That's the first thing. And give him glory. What's ironic about this is, where do we just come from? chapter 13, where men are fearing the power of the Antichrist and giving him glory, and this angel's going, don't do it, fear God, give him the glory, because the hour of his judgment, he's sovereign, is come. We're down to the two-minute warning if you watch football, right? Worship him who, hears the creation, who made the heavens. Antichrist didn't do that worship God he made the earth the sea and the springs of water so that's the, his the angel's announcement is uh, there very simply there may be more words than that interestingly in Matthew 24:14 when Jesus is teaching his apostles about the second coming and about the end of the world he says in verse 14 and this gospel will be preached to the whole world, and then the end will come. Most people have heard that and thought, well, we got to get the word out to countries where they haven't heard the gospel very much yet, and we got to get it on internet and satellite TV and radio, And which is all true, don't get me wrong. And we're supposed to preach the gospel to the person down the street or your sister or whoever that doesn't believe. However, this angel does it now? You might ask, why didn't God just do it this way with the angels from the beginning? Because He wanted you and I to be involved in the uh, process of evangelizing, sharing the gospel. Um, keep in mind, if He's the creator, and He is, does He not have the right to judge His creation? He does. Right? When we used to play football in my at my friend's house or the, another friend's house, the rule was, well, what's out of bounds? Well, it's Bill's house. What's out of bounds? Okay, the line of bricks right there, and then if you go into the roses, you're out of, you know, or the road, we played in the street sometimes, or baseball or whatever. It's his house. God's. His rules. So he does have a right to judge. Um, one day, Philippians 29 2, 9, and 10, 9, 10, and 11 says, let's go there real fast. If you can't find it, that's okay. Philippians 2, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, then Colossians. Philippians 2, I'll just read it. He's talking about Jesus, Philippians 2, 9 says, Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, that's Jesus and gave him Jesus, the name that is above every name. Here's what I'm after. That at the name of Jesus, this is interesting. You're expecting it to say that at the name of Jesus, every Christian will bow. Is that true? It is, but that's not what it says. It says every knee should bow. Does that mean every knee? It does. Every knee and he he wants to take it home. So he says in heaven and on earth and under the earth in heaven, those have already died that were believers on earth, those that are still alive and those under the earth at that time, buried, unbelievers, even the unbelievers are going to bend their knee and uh, bow in worship to Jesus. Yes. Oh, they're believers. No they'll do it reluctantly you and i will do it because we've been used to doing it for years amen or at least months if we're new christians at the name of jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every see it tongue confess that jesus christ is lord to the glory of god the father you and i will do that willingly they will do it reluctantly like this oh no it was jesus all along and it's too late now. There's no second chance. Uh, Hebrews says it's appointed unto each man and woman to live and die once, and then the judgment. No second chance, no purgatory, no limbo. Live and die once, and then the judgment. Okay, go back to Revelation. So there's the gospel. Fear God, give him glory. Hour of judgments come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Almost like he's saying, this is your last chance. Verse 8, a second angel followed and said, implied here is with the same PA system globally, okay, to be heard around the world. That's a really good PA with a good wireless mic. A second angel followed and said, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. You say, what's going on here with this? This is the first mention, I think, of Babylon in the book of Revelation. If you were with us for the Daniel study, Babylon goes all the way back, all the way back to uh, Genesis, I think it's chapter 10 and 11, Nimrod, where the, the tower of Babel was built. The first idolatry on planet earth. So is Babylon in Revelation? A lot. Chapter 16, chapter 17 is all about it. Okay. In the Bible, sometimes Babylon is the literal city, the land, the kingdom of Babylon, which was in modern day Iraq, Mesopotamia. In that area, believe it or not, most scholars think that's where, you're going to be surprised at this, but it's true, that's where the Garden of Eden was based on the rivers and the geography they give you in, in the uh, book of Genesis. Sometimes it's the literal city of Babylon. I don't think it is here. There are some that think Babylon is going to be rebuilt. How many remember Saddam Hussein? Saddam Hussein believed that he was going to rebuild in Iraq, his country, Babylon again, and fulfill prophecy in an evil kind of a way. He didn't. Um, sometimes it's a literal city. Sometimes it's the religious system of godly, of godless, sorry, uh, man-centered religion, idolatry. That's what it is here. But it's also sometimes a political system, and that's what it is here as well. It's the Antichrist's kingdom. So he's saying that Babylon, that whole system he's announcing, is fallen. You say, wait, the people that are hearing that, has it fallen at that moment? No. But as often happens in the Bible, if God knows something's happening and nothing can stop it, he announces it as if it's happened, even though... It's still yet to happen in the weeks ahead or days ahead or whatever it may be. Um, Nimrod founded the city of Babylon and he was a God hater and a rebel. Um, Babylon was a monument to the, as was, um, the Tower of Babel to a false deity. It was man's attempt to build a tower to show God, we don't need you. We can build up as high as we want to. Uh, kind of silly. Um, so, In Revelation 17 and 18, we learn another main character, which is um, the uh, adulterous woman, the whore of Babylon. You ever heard that term? That is a religious, strictly religious pagan system built around maybe Christianity. A lot of people think think it's the Catholic Church. Some think it's a conglomeration of all religions. But there's going to be a religion that starts to gain so many followers on planet Earth that the Antichrist sees, I can use this, and he does. You'll see this in 17 and 18. For a time he uses this, it's called a woman. It's a figurative thing. It's not a real woman. And eventually when he takes power of the world, he realizes I don't need that fake religion anymore and poof, gets rid of her and Babylon falls. So this is also looking ahead. This angel is preaching the gospel in a negative context. Judgment is about to fall. The city you think, the kingdom you think is so strong is about to crumble. Don't put your eggs in that basket, so to speak. And it's anticipating the fall of 17 and 18, Revelation 17 and Revelation 18. Um, th- that religion is personified as a temptress seducing people to uh, her way of life. Um, let's see. Go back to verse 8. Fallen, fallen, is Babylon a uh, uh, repetition for emphasis? Babylon the Great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. You mean physical, real adultery? Could be. Spiritual adultery usually is accompanied by real adultery, okay? Um, but the main adultery is they're gonna worship a man, worship Satan instead of God. Verse nine another angel. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast, that's the Antichrist, and its image, that's the the statue-like thing that the false prophet member in chapter 13 builds, and he gives it breath, and it's able to speak and make people be killed who don't take the mark. If anyone, this is a warning, worships the beast, I want you to notice that God lays out the truth in such a way that no one can say, I didn't know that it was a bad thing. I mean, yes, I heard the angel, but I thought maybe he was kidding, or maybe it was like a special effect for a movie or something. And sorry, if anyone worships the beast, the Antichrist, and its image, and receives its mark, there it is again, on on their forehead or on their hand, No excuses. That's what this verse is saying. Hey, I was just trying to feed my family. You couldn't buy or sell without it. I didn't mean anything by it. It is ownership. You either have the mark of God on your forehead as ownership or the mark of Satan. There's only two teams. There's no neutral ground here. Very important. Well, what will happen to these people if they worship the beast and its image? This is sort of saying to take the mark is to worship the beast. You got the picture? It's not like, I'm just going to take it for financial reasons. I'm still going to worship Jesus. I'm just doing it for my family so I can give more to my church. Yeah, right. Um, Well, what will happen to them? Verse 10, they too will drink the wine. Oh, wine, a party? Not really. The wine of God's wrath, fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. Oh, so we're going to get wrath from God if we do those things. Yes. Well, what will happen to them? Eventually, they will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. That's hell. Well, how long does that last? Verse 11. And the smoke of their torment will rise for almost a month. Is that what it says? I wish forever and ever there will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in his image or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. Okay, go back a few verses because I wanted to take all that in one bite and then we'll get to verse 12. Okay, if you do that, why would people be so stupid as to take the mark? Number one, they're deceived. They believe the lie we learned earlier. Remember, 2 Thessalonians 2. Number two, practical reasons. I just want to eat feed my family, keep my job, my bank account, my house. Reason number three, because men and women, human beings, have a vacuum in their spirit, in their soul, I should say. What do you mean? I mean, they don't want no religion. That's double negative, I know. They don't want to not have religion. They want religion. They know they need it, but they want it on their terms. And they like the Antichrist, basically. So they're willing to worship him. They are willing to, you know, give it all to him, so to speak. Um, If you take that mark, if you worship the the beast, his image, then you drink God's fury. May I say, Um, who would you rather make angry at you? Mike Tyson or Pee Wee Herman? Pee Wee Herman. What's he going to do, right? Mike Tyson could hurt you. There's nobody worse to have angry at you than God. Nobody. And they're going to get the wrath of God. Okay, but in verse uh, 10, but surely God's going to water it down, right? No. Poured full strength, mixed without mixing, is how it reads in Greek, meaning absolute, no watering down of his anger, uh, full strength into the cup of his wrath. And they'll be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the lamb. Tormented, hell, punishment. Okay. In this verse and many others is the refuting of two doctrines, which they believe it or not, there are churches that teach each of these. Number one, universalism. You ever heard of that? Everybody goes to heaven. God understands. He's going to save everybody. More people go to hell than go to heaven. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Many there be that find it. Narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. Few there be that find it. Okay, no universalism. Okay, Jehovah's Witnesses and others teach annihilationism. Okay, yes, some people don't believe. Yes, it's the majority. The Christians are with Christ forever in heaven and then on the new heavens and the new earth. But the unbelievers are judged, and they're snuffed out. They're annihilated. They just disappear. Poof. Burned up. Hell, fire, they're burned up. Right? Wrong. I like to say that the human soul is eternal. That's good news for you and me. For unbelievers, it's the worst news in the world. The human soul is eternal. And they're going to live somewhere forever. Outside the presence of God, that's what hell is. Forever. Um, There's various terms for hell. We'll get to those. But it speaks of eternal punishment. Outer darkness, fire, weeping, and gnashing of teeth. In the Greek, those tenses of those verbs, it doesn't say they'll cry for a little while and that'll be it. Weeping, ongoing weeping, ongoing gnashing of teeth. Uh, Yeah. What's interesting about this verse, and then we'll take our two-minute break, um, is... A lot of people have been surprised by this, and some teach that this isn't the actual final hell. Why is that, Joe? Because they're tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. Meaning, Jesus is there, and so are the holy angels. So, Jesus isn't going to be in hell is he? Watching them suffer. Okay. Some think this is a pre, uh, uh, a, uh, what, what word do I want to use? Um, a first suffering before the final suffering. Hence, Jesus is there. Others have said that hell is God, since God is omniscient and is uh, uh, omnipresent everywhere, that hell is somewhere where God is. He's there as well. Hell is being in torment, facing God without a mediator. Heaven is facing God with a mediator, Jesus Christ. He paid. I have no right to be here. I'm the last person that should be here. I owe it all to Jesus. That's why I'm here. Without that mediator, The Bible says it's a scary thing to fall into the hands of the living God, right? I'm paraphrasing. Let's take our two-minute break. I'm going to turn my screen off. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Those of you that are here, say hello to someone you don't know and grab a snack back there on the table. I'll be right back. Don't go away. Welcome back to the Tuesday Night Bible Study. We're all stuffing our faces here with treats, thanks to two people, that at least, that brought treats. Anyway, we're back in Revelation 14. We've had angels preaching the gospel, both positively and negatively, warning of judgment. This third angel is talking about, in verse 9, 10, 11, warning about judgment. This is something that can only take place during the tribulation, that taking of the mark of the uh, Antichrist on their hand or forehead. They'll drink God's the wrath, uh, the wine, sorry, of God's fury, poured full strength, verse 10, into the cup of his wrath, tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment, verse 11, rises forever and ever, no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast or his image, anyone who receives the mark of his name. Here's the thing. Are you still awake? Say amen. Amen. Okay. Here's the thing. Those of you on Zoom, are you still awake? Okay. All right. Here's the thing. The people, there there will be some people who will take that mark because they truly worship Antichrist. There may be some that do it for practical reasons, like I said earlier, right? We got to eat, we got to keep our house and our Mercedes and whatever. Um, I'm just going to take the mark, okay? They will be comfortable in terms of being able to eat, drink, have a bank account for three and a half years, and then tormented forever. Christians who don't take the mark will be uncomfortable for three years or less. What do you mean less? If they chop my head off, I stop being uncomfortable the second they chop my head off, right? Um, But... So you can be comfortable for three and a half years and then miserable for eternity. Listen, short-sighted, stupid, right? Or uncomfortable with tribulation and persecution and even martyrdom, which only ushers you into the kingdom of God forever. Which is the better deal? That's my question. Yes, but it's scary. God will bring you and I through this. Okay. Uh, We already talked about that. So he's warning about uh, damnation, really, about hell. Um, There are lots of pastors that won't preach about hell because it's offensive. We we, we don't want to preach offensive things. Listen, that's unloving, unchristian. I've given you this analogy many, many times. If you've been in this Bible for a study for a long time, you're going to be sick of this one, but you're walking, you can't sleep. So you take a walk at midnight in your neighborhood and you notice that Ken's house, who's your friend, lives down the street from you. He's, oh, there, his bedroom's on the right side there. Yeah. Oh, is that smoke on his roof? Ken's house is on fire but it's after midnight. I hate to bother him. (laughs) He might be offended that I woke him up and I'm not going to say anything. I I don't want to disturb him. No, you should disturb. Do you love Ken? Yes. Break a window if you have to. Wake him up. What's your point, Joe? Every single person here, including me, including all of you on Zoom, You know somebody, probably many people, who don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. What I just described to you about hell is where they're going. Translation, their house is on fire. Yes, but that's not a good analogy, Joe, because Ken's house could probably burn in the next 45 minutes to an hour, whereas the people might live another 20 years. They might, or they might die tomorrow morning. And you might wish, I should have said something. Why I didn't want to offend Ken and wake him up. Wake him up. In a loving way, tell people the gospel while you can. Um, Because the time will come when it's too late. And the fact that they're in your life is probably an indication that God expects you to evangelize as a missionary, if you will them, right? Missionaries, some of them go to Zaire and to India and Africa and to Israel or wherever. Your mission field is the people that you know, that you work with, that you live next door to you. that Have you ever heard this? This always makes me cringe, that there's people that a judgment day, they're going to be condemned to hell, and they're going to turn to you and say, you knew me for 30 years. Did you believe this? The whole time? Yeah. Why didn't you tell me? I didn't want to offend you that your house was on fire. It's the gospel is an offense. The New Testament even says that. Better to be offended. And he gets up in a bathroom and goes, What do you want, Joe? Ken, your house is on fire. Oh, thank you for telling me, right? Uh, and nice pajamas, by the way. Okay, anyway. I don't know where that came from. All right. So um, last thing. Um, I'm in verse, uh, I'm still in this section. Verse 10. These people that take that mark, they're going to drink from a cup. Do you see it? The cup of his wrath. Yes, we understand that. Move on. Listen, somebody already drank that cup. Do you realize that? Do you know that all the sins that you committed in your life, you and I tallied up a huge total, a giant cup of wrath, okay? Jesus Christ on the cross drank the cup of God's wrath for you and I. So this isn't the first time the cup's been poured out. It was poured out on him, not for the sins of John and Judy only, but of the whole world, this uh, uh, John's gospel says. Okay. Smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. Um, So you get the cup filled with God's wrath. The word wrath appears 13 times uh, in this book of Revelation. Um, Do you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says, Father, if there's any other way, take this what? Cup from me. What cup? coffee cup the cup of your wrath if there's any other way but then he says that phrase that you and I should say every day not my will but your will be done right and he took it willingly in your place and mine why you owe him everything um yeah keep in mind everybody that's going to drink that cup of wrath deserves it except Jesus who didn't um man mankind chose to rebel ignore his son's death they ruined the earth they went their own way they said to god no my will be done and god said okay um okay sidebar god's wrath some people have a problem with that anger oh anger's bad is it is it always bad Or is there a place for righteous indignation, anger? And there is. God, who is holy, hates sin. Okay? And so to not judge sin would be to violate his character. Example. Well, Joe, we got your x-rays back, and there's a tumor the size of a tennis ball in your lungs. Cancerous cells. Oh, So what we're going to do is we're going to operate on you. We're going to cut all that cancer out of you. And we're going to kill every last cell. What idiot would say, but don't those cells have a right to live too? (laughs) Um, My point is you want to get every bit of it. God sees sin as absolutely the worst thing. All hatred, murder, racism, stealing, adultery, betrayal, lying, lust, spousal abuse, child abuse, idolatry, greed, sexual perversion, drunkenness, drug addiction, rape, every single bad thing on earth has its roots in sin, which is the cancer on planet earth. No wonder God has wrath against it. Um, he must punishment, punish it. Um, we already talked about that. Um, oh, here it is. All the terms about hell. It's the absence of God's love. Outside of all things holy, the absence of God's provision, outer darkness, eternal punishment, punishment of eternal fire, a fiery furnace where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, where the fire, listen, never goes out. It's a fiery lake of burning sulfur. It's... uh It's to be shut out from the presence of the Lord and the majesty of his power. It's conscious eternal torment where their worm doesn't die, nor is the fire quenched. Jesus in Matthew 25 says, depart from me, you accursed ones into the eternal fire. This is interesting. Prepared for the devil and his angels, demons. It was prepared for them. God hoped people wouldn't go there. Many will. Um, We already talked about that. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's unloving not to tell people. Okay, let's move on because some people are getting bummed out here. Um, Just kidding. Yeah, we already talked about that. Verse 12, you say, finally, hallelujah, we're moving on. All right. Verse 12. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus, why is that in there? Because the temptation will be to take the easy way out and at least I can eat and be a part of society and they, I don't have to worry about them chopping my head off. The patient endurance of God's people. Look how they're defined. Who keep his commands. That's the O word. Obedience right? Not oil. Obedience. That's how you can tell the people of God. Oh, I believe in Jesus. I'm just not really obeying him right now. And I'm living in sin. But I I believe up here until your actions, your thoughts, your words, your deeds match what you believe. You don't really believe. They keep his commands. You can't keep his commands if you don't know his commands. So they got to be in the Bible, don't they? right? Otherwise, you're going to make up a God that I think this is what God would want. Don't do that. You'll create your own God and he can't save you. What else do they do? They keep his commands and they remain faithful to Jesus, just like the 144,000 that were virgins. They didn't, they don't veer off and worship anything or anyone else. Um, Verse 13. So, the patient endurance on the part of God's people. Those people who are remaining faithful to Jesus, don't you know, if we're living at that time, we're going to be in prayer for each other, for ourselves, big time, aren't we? And the thing is, if that day comes, let's just say, I'm not picking dates, let's say it's tomorrow, Wednesday, okay? Those of you that are in a church where you know a lot of people and you're tied in and you talk to each other and you have meals together and you fellowship together and eat snacks Tuesday night together, you will fare much better than the Lone Ranger Christian who is just me and my Bible. I don't like churches, I don't like Christians. That guy's gonna have a hard time. We are gonna need each other more than we do anyway, brothers and sisters, right? Okay, made you feel guilty, that's good. Okay, now it's time for some uh, uh, a beatitude. Okay, patient endurance on the part of God's people who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Verse 13, then I heard a voice from heaven say, doesn't say who said it, by the way. Write this, John's going, okay, came from heaven. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, They will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. Okay, what's going on here? Most of the voices we've been hearing have been angels calling out to unbelievers, right? The end is near, better turn. Um, That implies, by the way, those angels, I meant to say this because somebody emailed me this question. During the tribulation, can people still come to Christ? even when Antichrist is on the earth and demanding the mark. And I said, yes. And here's why. Eight billion, roughly, people on planet earth. If half of them die during the tribulation, which according to the numbers, they do uh, a quarter and then a third. If half die, that's still four billion people. What's your point, Joe? Just this. If the Antichrist announced we're going to make everybody get a mark on their hand or forehead, everybody? How long would that take? I don't care how many people he's got working for him. This the logistical nightmare of waiting in line, it could take months, maybe a year, maybe more. In that time, people are deciding, should we do it, Harriet, or not? The angel is preaching. Can people still receive Christ at that time? Yes. But I believe based on what we just read earlier, once you take the mark, it's too late. I don't even think once people take the mark, they will regret it because they will have sold out to the Antichrist, to a a false God. Okay, Um, let's keep reading, shall we? So this is a beatitude. Remember the beatitudes in Matthew 5? Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs, you know, remember all those? This is another beatitude. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Now, that's not one you hear much, is it? Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the, yeah, those are good. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. What does it mean to die in the Lord? It means to die with a saving faith, not a said faith. They're dying in the Lord, abiding in God. That's that's the condition they're in spiritually when they die. For them, it's a blessed experience for you and me. I know you're not looking forward to your death. Some of you are more afraid of it than others. It's, it's gonna be awesome. It's gonna be getting weaker and getting dimmer. And I think there'll be a peace that co- overcomes us that angels will see things as we never saw before as we're transitioning from this world to the next world. Now don't go home and you know make it happen sooner than it's supposed to, but I think it's gonna be awesome. Um, In fact, I know it is. The blessedness of saints, even in the tribulation. Because remember, if we die, we're going to die of an accident or an illness, right? In a hospital, in a car, fall in the bathtub and hit your head, whatever. But these people, if they're dying in the Lord, they're probably being killed. And this verse is saying to encourage believers you are so blessed if that's you. Do you know why? Well, you just said so because you get to go right to heaven. No, because they are assured of their place that they didn't wimp out in that final second. Here comes the ax. Here comes the guillotine. Here comes the bullet. Go ahead. I know my Lord. I love Jesus. It's beautiful. That's why they're blessed. Um, And I want you to notice about the works of these people. Um. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, Holy Spirit. They will rest from their works, from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. What does that mean? If you built a house, that's a deed. That'll follow you to heaven? No. It means every good thing that we ever did in the kingdom of God that blessed and glorified God or blessed your fellow man those things follow you. They're not wood, hay, and stubble that will get burned up. Uh, according to one of the Corinthian books, in the judgment, it's the, the precious stones and rock and and uh, not rock and uh, gold and silver are de- de- good deeds that are done with God's glory in mind. Their works follow them. What do you mean follow them? Follow them to heaven, as opposed to sins, which don't. When you get to heaven, don't start apologizing. Jesus, I'm so sorry, September 3rd, 1999, I know. It was. He's going to go, I don't remember that. My son paid for that. Why do you remember that? It's beautiful. So their works follow them. So my question is, what works are you and I doing that will follow us? Each of us has jobs that we do, go to earn money. Some of us are retired. Um, but we each do stuff. I mow the lawns at my house. That's a work. Not going to follow me to heaven. It's not evil, but it has no eternal consequence. But if you witness to the lady at the supermarket or your next door neighbor, even if she doesn't believe, that's a work that will follow you because you're obeying God. Right? Vic is is witnessing to a woman who's a Buddhist. And she's starting to say, maybe there's something to this God thing. He's going to give me the name. We're going to pray for her next week. What an awesome thing. Even if she never believes, that's a work that'll go to heaven. So let me, that'll follow you to heaven. So let me ask me, what are you doing that has eternal consequences? I cooked dinner tonight. I appreciate it. My wife made me a great dinner. There's no eternal consequences. It's a blessing. Anything we do for the kingdom of God is an eternal consequence for his glory. Okay, um, I'm still reading notes here. All the other stuff that isn't for the kingdom of God is going to burn, according to one of the books Peter wrote. Jim, did you have a question? Well, just in, you know, and in one sentence or less, just because I got people that can't hear you and I got to repeat it. Go ahead. In, in verse 13, also to, uh, chapter 6, where um, the, the voices are saying, the, oh, oh Lord, he's talking about the martyrs in chapter six that are that are have died during the tribulation and ask God how long before you avenge our deaths and he's right it does tie in um they're blessed who die in the Lord from now on they'll rest from the labor their deeds will follow them and he's in the process of announcing the uh, avenging of their deaths, isn't he? With all that, is that kind of what you where you were going? Yeah, beautiful. Um, they'll rest for their from their labor. The Lord is my shepherd; I shall not want. You you notice the second line? He makes me to lie down in green pastures. Um, a friend of mine went into surgery today, and I typed out in a text the whole twenty third psalm it's so comforting. What do you mean lie down in green pastures? Double meaning. Lie down is a position of work? No. Rest, right? I can rest in the Lord. I don't have to do things to try to get God's attention so he'll bless me. I still do things, but I'm resting in terms of trying to earn salvation. The other meaning is, of course, we're talking about sheep, right? Shepherd, sheep. The Lord's my shepherd. He makes me to lie down where? where there's abundant green pasture, abundance. Anyway, that's why I shall not want, because the best shepherd of all is my shepherd. Okay, Um, last thing in that verse. uh, They'll rest from their labor, their deeds will follow them. Yeah, no, we covered that. Let's move on. Verse 14, I looked and there before me was a white cloud and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man. You remember that title? Jesus uses it of himself, with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. A sickle is a large curved blade that you would use, very sharp, that you would use to harvest wheat or other uh, grains and what have you. Okay, so what's going on here? A white cloud. Remember the Shekinah glory is the name for the cloud that always accompanied God when he showed up in the Old Testament. So it's a white cloud, first of all, seated on the cloud. Isn't that an awesome picture? Can you imagine? If you're an artist, somebody paint that for me. There he is, Jesus, the Son of Man, seated on a white cloud with a crown of gold on his head, victorious, king of the earth, and a sharp sickle in his hand. It's time to harvest. Now, we got to talk about the word harvest because then there's going to be more about the word harvest here. Let me see what verse is that 14. So harvest sometimes refers to um, spreading the gospel and believers coming to Jesus. But more often, Old Testament and in Revelation, the harvest is the harvesting of the unsaved, sinful people, judgment, sickles, uh, Matthew's, uh, I'm sorry, Daniel 7, Mark 4, Matthew 13, a sharp sickle refers to judgment. This is the son of man, Jesus, uh, on a cloud coming in judgment. Um, if you think about the first coming of Jesus and the second coming, they're pretty different. The first time he comes as a servant, right? Humble baby, helpless. Second time, he comes as a king, judging. First time, he comes in humility. Second time, majesty, splendor. The first time, he comes obeying his father. Second time, he comes commanding. He's still obeying his father, though. First time, he comes alone and dies alone. Second time, he comes with all his holy angels and the saints at the second coming. First time, he comes as a Sower of seeds. Second time he comes as a comes as a reaper. He's reaping the earth. Keep your finger here. Might as well do this now. Go to Matthew chapter 13. Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Oh, that was a good one. Matthew 13. I want to show you something that might surprise you. Maybe it won't. Matthew 13. <laughs> Uh, Okay. Um, Let's see. Verse 24. Kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. Do you see it? While everyone was sleeping, verse 25, his enemy came and sowed weeds or tares. Tares look just like wheat until the harvest comes. He sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. Verse 27, the owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field, believers? Where, den, where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. Verse 28, the servants asked him, listen to the question. Do you want us to go and pull them up, meaning the weeds, now? Remember what I said. Cares look just like wheat. Listen to the answer. No, verse 29, because while you're pulling the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. In other words, accidentally. Let both grow until the harvest. Now, here's the surprising order. Watch. At that time, what time? The harvest. I will tell the harvesters, first collect the what Weeds, aren't you expecting, first collect the wheat, the believers, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, picture of hell, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Um, Okay, now stay in the same chapter of Matthew, um, because you may think, well, Joe, you're kind of explaining that, I'm not sure you're right. Let's listen to Jesus explain it. Verse 36, they left the crown, went into the house. Disciples came to him and said, explain to us this weeds thing in the field. My translation. Verse 37, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. That's you and daughters. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. The harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The son of man will send out his angels. They will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. That's what we're reading about in chapter 14, 15, 16, etc. They will throw them into the fiery furnace. There'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's one of the ways of describing hell. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has an ear, let him hear. Anybody here have an ear? Did you hear? Go back to Revelation with me, if you will. Um, Let's see. Uh, So there's the guy on the white cloud. It's Jesus. He's got a sickle. Verse 15, then another angel came out of the temple that's in heaven and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, take your sickle and reap because the time to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is ripe. The word for ripe in Greek, there's a word for ripe. This is the word for ridiculously overripe. Meaning what? That God in his patience waited and waited patiently. Sin going on and until the harvest was absolutely overripe. Uh, it's used in a negative context, if you will. So um, he's saying it's time to r- reap. The earth. This is all in Joel chapter 3, 9 to 17, by the way, uh, and the Matthew passage we just read, th- 13. Uh, we already talked about that. So, uh, yeah, we talked about that too. Okay, uh, let me read the next verse, if I may. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Verse 17, another angel came out of the temple in heaven. He too, remember, we're looking ahead in time. This is not the middle of the tribulation. This is the very end. Another angel came out of the temple. Remember, I told you there's a lot of angels. He too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel, verse 18, who had authority over, power over, or charge of the fire, came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. He's calling to the Lord Jesus Telling him it's time. Take your sharp, sharp sickle, it's hard to say, and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into maybe these is the is this the good people? Is this the Christians? No. Take your sharp, sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung a sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the what? Heaven? The great winepress of God's wrath. Okay. Now you say, now wait a minute, mixed metaphor here, vine. I thought Israel was the vine in the Old Testament. Correct. Israel was the vine planted, um, Psalm 80, Isaiah 5, Matthew 21 talks about it. God planted a vineyard, a vine called Israel, in order to bear fruit for his glory in uh, all the nations. It failed, Psalm 80, and had to be cut down. Okay, Judaism, if you will. Now, John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Who said that, class? Jesus, right? He's the vine now. But in Revelation, the earth vine, if you will, that's how it reads in Greek, is the world system of self and man-made religion and paganism opposed to God. That vine produces grapes and it's all bad fruit. It's got to be harvested and squished. If you've ever been or seen, well, there's an "I Love Lucy" episode, right? You ever see that one where there's a big vat of grapes and she's in there with her feet? It's pretty funny. Anyway, let's watch a little of it now. No, I'm just kidding. Um, the point, the point is, I need to really get a personality. Okay. Um, so this world system of the vine is in contrast to Christ. Okay. So look at the the next verse. The the earth the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine are ripe. Verse 19, there's a gathering of the grapes. They throw them into the great wine press of God's wrath, his anger against sin. Don't feel bad for these people. I mean, we do. They deserve it. Is God wrong to do this? Wrong. You're wrong if you think that. It's the right thing. They, using a a, a pronoun for people, verse 20, they were trampled in the wine press outside the city. That's where Jesus was crucified, outside the city. And, the, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. That's 180 to 200 miles. Height of the horse's bridles, four feet. Okay. One of these verses where Joe has to tell you, a lot of scholars think this is literal, a river of blood four feet deep for 200 miles. 200 miles happens to be um, the, distant, the, the diameter of Israel, um, I believe. Um, a lot of scholars think it's symbolic, meaning a lot of blood, a lot of people being punished. Some people think that the blood will just spatter, to the height of four feet. Which one is it? I don't know. Um, but the point is, it's a, a horrible carnage of judgment um, that God has to do. Um, let's keep reading. Yeah, we got a couple minutes. Uh, are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Okay. Zoom, you're awake, you people? All right. Okay. I saw those hands. Um, let's see. This, These verses are where the woman that wrote the song, I believe it's a woman, how many have heard the battle hymn of the Republic? Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vineyard where the grapes of wrath are stored. He, has lo- he hath loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword, the sickle. His truth is marching on. Glory, glory. Okay. I'm not going to do that whole thing now. Um, In any case, we'll pick this up next week because we're just about out of time. But um, God is judging sin finally and absolutely. Could he have done it 500 years before this or 2,000 years? Yes, but it wouldn't have been the right time. He waited patiently till the last person that would come to faith in Jesus came, and then the end came. Shall we pray? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time in your word. And after uh, Revelation 13 of the Antichrist and the martyrs and the mark of the beast and the false prophet and persecution, we needed this, the reassurance that you win in the end. Justice wins in the end. Believers are glorious and rewarded in the end. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. That's true then, future uh, in the tribulation, it's few, it's true right now, God. How thankful we are, as your word says, O oh death, where is your sting? Gone because of Christ. Nothing but a glorious reunion and a, and a union with Christ. Thank you for these truths, God. May we have an eternal perspective in the way we deal with unbelievers whose houses are on fire. May we boldly preach the gospel with love and respect. Thank you for this time. We love you, Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know. That's really important. Those of you on Zoom, God bless you. We'll see you next time. Have a great night.